This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Today, the Return to Order Moment looks at education on three different levels. The first level is one that is relatively new, mass education, usually of adults, that takes place on the Internet. The second level is that of the university, and considers the process by which those august institutions went from places of inquiry to centers for indoctrination. The last article looks at the vexing question about whether high schools actually prepare students for their lives as adults. So now we present, Does Modern Education Actually Educate? All three articles were written by Edwin Benson, who will also be the narrator. The first article in the podcast is How TED Talks Offer Postmodern Madness. Almost anyone in academia or business administration has seen a TED Talk. These are 5 to 25-minute lectures first given at TED events. The presentations are then available on YouTube. The power of these talks comes from their easy availability. They have a Creative Commons license. They can be used for educational purposes, but not edited or modified. No one can charge admission when presented to groups, classes, or business meetings. The more popular videos have tens of millions of viewers. Many high school and college instructors use TED Talks for their classes. The lectures present controversial ideas, almost always with a leftward slant. The instructor can say... I don't agree with everything here, but some of the ideas are very good. Such disclaimers usually quiet parents and appease administrators. The breadth of subject areas of TED Talks is stunning. TED's 25 most popular talks included Do schools kill creativity? Your body language may shape who you are. How great leaders inspire action. Brain magic. What makes a good life? Lessons from the longest study on happiness and your elusive creative genius. Ted was the brainchild of Richard Saul Werman and Harry Marks. Ted's self-written history credits Mr. Werman as being inspired by the similarities within the worlds of technology, entertainment, and design. Hence the acronym T-E-D, TED. The organization's goals are outlined on its webpage, quote, TED is a global community, welcoming people from every discipline and culture who seek a deeper understanding of the world. We believe passionately in the power of ideas to change attitudes, lives, and ultimately, the world. On TED.com, we're building a clearinghouse of free knowledge from the world's most inspired thinkers and a community of curious souls to engage with ideas and each other, both online and at TED and TEDx events around the world all year long, unquote. TED is not a place for the traditionalist. The major TED conference takes place annually. The 2020 event is scheduled to take place in Vancouver in late July to an audience of 1,200. Attendance requires an application process. Potential attendees should be quote-unquote leaders in their field and able to make a strong contribution. 
The standard admission fee for the five-day event is $10,000, although a few first-time attendees get in at half price. Both levels are sold out for the 2020 meeting. The first day features talks from quote-unquote up-and-coming world changers. Next are three days of main stage talks, supplemented by discovery sessions. The last day is an epic final session and a farewell picnic. The talks are only part of the branded experience. The conference abounds with chances to network with fellow members of the social and scientific vanguard. TED facilitates such contacts with an app called TED Connect. TED also hosts more limited events. TED Women, TED Summit for Business Leaders, TED Ed Weekend for quote-unquote the next generation of TED, among others. The themes resonate with modern sensibilities. TED Women 2019's tagline was bold and brilliant. TED Summit 2019 celebrated a community beyond borders. While TED's chosen ones profit from the events, the talk's most significant impact is through the Internet. The catchphrase, ideas worth spreading, finds a vast audience online. Consider the talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity, with its 18 million-plus views. Many viewings took place, as this author experienced in faculty meetings. Perhaps a tenth of the population of the United States has seen it. The speaker, Sir Ken Robinson, charges that, quote, Our education system has mined our minds in ways that we strip-mined the earth, unquote. Hosts of parents, teachers, and administrators take this statement as newly revealed truth. However, Sir Ken merely reiterates a common bias within the education system that creativity is more important than factual knowledge. This idea harkens back to the turn of the 20th century. John Dewey, 1859-1952, often cited as the father of progressive education, would agree. In fact, Sir Ken's startling revelation is a cornerstone of Professor Dewey's 1938 book, experience, and education. Sir Ken pretends to impart wisdom while appealing to his audience's prejudices. This pretense is familiar to many TED Talks. Otherwise intelligent people enjoy being persuaded that they possess great understanding. They presume to be the golden people who have come to bring light to a confused world. Consider the following quotations. From Pranav Mintri in... The thrilling potential of sixth sense technology, quote, These technologies will make us more human, to be more connected to our physical world, unquote. Jill Bolt Taylor in My Stroke of Insight offers, We are the life force of the universe. Another from Brene Brown's The Power of Vulnerability, quote, Shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. If there is something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? Popular motivational speaker Tony Robbins tells us, quote, 
Decision is the ultimate power in why we do what we do. In How Great Leaders Inspire Action, Simon Sinek tells listeners, there are leaders and those who lead. Leaders hold a position of power or authority, but those who lead inspire us. Susan Cain's The Power of Introverts turns to the pseudo-spiritual realm. Quote, Go off to the wilderness. Be like Buddha. Have your own revelations, unquote. Ted claims to, quote, unquote, have a balanced and diverse group that can support our mission of bringing great ideas to the world. Conversely, the God of Christianity is notably absent. Ted's community guidelines prohibit comments that are, quote, not appropriate for the TED.com audience, and then goes on to list them. Pseudoscience, zealotry, personal requests, proselytizing, and self-promotion are not acceptable and will be removed, unquote. Admonitions to be like Buddha are acceptable, but the invocation of Christian virtue would offend Ted's humanist sentiments. In this setting, Emily F. Rothman could spend 15 minutes discussing how porn changes the way teens think about sex without ever mentioning abstinence or chastity. The Boston University professor did lament the lack of quote-unquote medically accurate sex education. She was, however, encouraging teenagers to grapple with the complexities of pornographic materials. She advised, they are living in an adult world and they are ready for adult conversations, unquote. Her audience cheered. TED is a virtual compendium of modern and postmodern thought. Traditional wisdom and virtue have no home here. The great universals, truth, goodness, beauty, are notably absent. It is an accurate reflection of the post-1968 academic world. TED promotes a full range of opinions, from left to far left. In 2018, Zachary R. Wood gave a TED Talk titled, Why It's Worth Listening to People You Disagree With. Other than the grammatical faux pas of ending his title with a preposition, it is a great idea. One thing is sure, however. Mr. Wood won't find any of them at a TED event. End of How TED Talks Offer Postmodern Madness Listeners may have noticed the name of John Dewey, the father of progressive education, in the last piece. His ideas formed many modern educational goals and methods. Their failure has undermined generations of students. The depth of that failure is discussed in the article, This is How Higher Education Went Mad. It begins with a quotation. If you were to examine any speech made by a university president 50 years ago, you would find that the word excellence occurs with great frequency. If you made the same examination now, you would find that diversity has taken its place. This quotation summarizes the main idea behind the book, The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done, by John M. Ellis.
Dr. Ellis is a distinguished professor emeritus of German literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Now he is at the end of a 50-year career, following a trajectory that has not been happy. The author describes the modern university as, quote, a fantasy world, a radical's paradise in which things that everyone in the real world knows to be false can be true and indeed is the only permissible truth, unquote. This fantasy world is full of imagined repression. The radicals believe that every nook and cranny of the university teems with gun-toting white nationalists eager to impose their will on helpless women, Hispanics, African Americans, and quote-unquote sexual minorities. This is not true, but the partisans of this postmodern world disregard inconvenient facts as examples of that same repression. Today's universities have whole departments designed to prevent people from dealing with the real world. The list of offerings at Dr. Ellis's UC Santa Cruz is mind-boggling. The Community Studies Department helps students, quote, identify, analyze, and help construct sites for social justice movements, nonprofit sector advocacy, public policymaking, and social enterprise, unquote. Critical race and ethnic studies majors examine, quote, present-day racial ethnic ideologies such as multiculturalism, colorblindness, and post-racialism, as well as contemporary social phenomena such as changing working conditions, new migration patterns, and emergent cultural expressions, unquote. Feminist studies is, quote, an interdisciplinary field of analysis that investigates how relations of gender are embedded in social, political, and cultural formations, unquote. If these offerings are insufficient to prevent tender psyches from dealing with people of differing values, there are a plethora of resource centers. There are separate centers for African Americans, American Indians, Asian-Americans-slash-Pacific Islanders, Chicano-slash-Latinos, queers, their word, and women. The immediate culprits of this transformation were changes sparked by the baby boom and the Vietnam War. From a demographic perspective, Dr. Ellis points out, quote, In 1965, there were 3.97 million college students at American public institutions. But by 1975, that figure had more than doubled to 8.83 million, unquote. Thus, the average public college needed to double its faculty. The colleges found their new faculty members among the recently graduated PhDs. The urgent need to fill chairs led to a decline in the academic standards for professors. At the same time, quote, the political turmoil and the unusual degree of radicalization on campus brought about by an increasingly unpopular war in Vietnam naturally had its greatest effect on those of draft age, which was precisely the group from which the huge expansion of college faculty members would have to come, unquote. The radical faculty members made no pretense of objectivity. As older colleagues died, they gained power over committees, hiring new faculty members in their image. The campus grew less tolerant of any non-leftist viewpoint. Asking questions that critically examined extreme positions became unacceptable. This outlook leads to the intellectual dead end of cultural relativism. Thus, 
Universities are no longer places where the students unlock the truths of generations. They are now little more than indoctrination centers. Challenging the racial hegemony spawns violence. As scholars Charles Murray and Heather McDonald could testify when they were not allowed to speak on liberal campuses. Unfortunately, the shortest part of the book is the most important one. It asks the question, what can we do? Dr. Ellis argues, Real change can happen in one way alone, by dismantling as far as possible the radical faculty regime. It will go away only when the broader society that academia exists to serve decides that the destructive rule of radical activists on campus must be brought to an end. Unquote. There is a need for public awareness, which will presumably cause parents and taxpayers to question the usefulness of higher education. If state legislatures cut off funds and parents decline to send their children, the radicals lose their institutional lifelines. Dr. Ellis hopes that liberal state legislators can come to see that they have more in common with conservatives than they do with the radicals. He also urges accreditation agencies and the Federal Department of Education to use their power to end this radical abuse. He concludes, The measures I've discussed will all depend on the public will to reform academia. Unfortunately, reform will depend on the people who demand it. Unquote. The breakdown of higher education shines best in its treatment of how this situation came to pass. John M. Ellis had a ringside seat to observe the process that he describes. His book is not a memoir, but the reader can almost see him sitting through endless faculty, department, and committee meetings as the radicals eviscerated the school. The author's political leanings are unstated, but he seems to be a one-time liberal who got mugged by reality. There are two shortcomings in Dr. Ellis's analysis that need to be mentioned. He states that, quote, up to about 1800, the standard way of looking at the world was in tribal terms. It was the European Enlightenment that began to cultivate a sense that we share a common humanity, unquote. Dr. Ellis fails to acknowledge the enormous role of the Catholic Church that conceived the ideas of the university and shared humanity during the Middle Ages, a full 500 years before 1800. Further, those Enlightenment ideas helped to sow the seeds for the modern university's decline. The second issue with this book is a chicken-or-the-egg dilemma. Dr. Ellis argues that the current rot has spread from the university to elementary and high schools. However, the rot set in primary and secondary schools long before the radical 60s and 70s. The first wave of radical professors grew up in schools influenced by John Dewey, the father of progressive education. Their political radicalization began long before the Vietnam War gave a focal point to Dewey's worldview. End of. This is how higher education went mad. The last article is more personal and comes out of a relationship which this author and narrator had with one particular student during his career as a teacher in a public high school. How Teachers Should Help Teenagers Become Adults Recently, I went to a local funeral home for a viewing. The deceased was a former student. He was driving while intoxicated, 
and the resulting high-speed collision was horrible. His passenger died as well. I will refer to the young man as John, even though that is not his real name. John was in his mid-twenties. It is always sad any time a young person dies. It is a waste of so much potential. On the other hand, he took stupid risks and died because of it. John had not been a great or even a good student. On the other hand, he had an engaging personality, and I liked him. His infractions against classroom order were frequent, but their magnitude was on the low end of the scale. When I was in high school, the early 70s, they would have been punished, but the standard of conduct had deteriorated to the point that they weren't taken seriously by the office. He exasperated me, and yet I liked him. I always thought that John could become successful, if he could just grow up. For a while, it looked like I had been right. I hadn't seen John since his senior year in high school, but I had heard through the grapevine that he was doing reasonably well. He had a steady job that fit his interests and abilities. He had purchased a home. He had fathered a child out of wedlock, which is unfortunately common in his community and generation. On the other hand, he was raising and supporting the child, which is not as common. Amid the coronavirus, the viewing was a complicated process. John's mother greeted me at the edge of the parking lot, effusively grateful that I had come. She told me that John had liked me and wanted in some ways to be like me. Only ten people were allowed in the building at a time. Several former students were in the line outside the door waiting to enter, and we exchanged pleasantries. I caught up on how some of them were doing. I knew a lot of the other young people who were milling about the parking lot in knots. Many were smoking. Several pickup trucks had coolers in the back. When my turn to go in came, hundreds of photos festooned the room. Several screens showed other pictures in rotations. There were the typical little boy photos, bikes, parks, family trips, Christmas, and so on. His childhood looked a lot like my childhood, even though I am 40 years older. Other photos showed the young man I had known in high school. There were pictures of him and his son. John's smiling face was a prominent part of all of them. The only sign of religion was a Bible on a stand next to the casket, open to the book of Proverbs. One of the verses was highlighted. As I stood next to the casket, the first thought was, Well, John, we certainly had our moments, didn't we? His clothes were informal, about the same way that his friends in the parking lot were dressed. I stood uncomfortably while I searched for a more appropriate thought. When I didn't find any, I said a short prayer for the repose of his soul, crossed myself, and left. As afternoon became evening, a former colleague informed me, the gathering grew louder and more inebriated. There were lots of revving engines and screeching tires in the parking lot. The supply of beer was plentiful. If John had been one of the gathered instead of the corpse, he probably would have enjoyed himself. Now I find myself thinking, what was the point of John's life? In tandem, another, more troubling question occurs to me. Why didn't I end up like John? The most significant part of the answer was God's grace. I had been open to the action of God's grace as it appeared in my life. Thus, I took a different path. 
God also gave me parents who would not tolerate the sort of behavior that would get me into trouble. I never knew much about John's home life. His obituary mentioned no church. It did list four parents, so presumably he came from a broken home. If the office ever informed any of his parents about his many classroom disruptions, its corrections, if any, had little effect. My life followed a different course than John's. For the group at the funeral home, I was a well-liked and somewhat respected former teacher. My reception at the funeral proved that my 34 years in the classroom had not gone to waste. Or did it? Perhaps the means of John's death was a sign that I, and the system under which I labored, had failed. Did that failure contribute to the gathering in that funeral home parking lot? No. I could not have saved John from his untimely end. He made his decisions, and this was an all-too-foreseeable consequence. The school did not serve John that last drink, nor did it hand him the car keys. In comparison with the influence of family, our role as teachers is lesser. At the same time, we, as a system, owed John more than we gave him. It was not academic attainment. John did not want that. Learning requires, at the very least, that the student wants to learn. We should have offered John something else, a sense of responsibility. We were wrong to overlook his shortcomings. In our misplaced charity, we gave him low but passing scores instead of the failing grades that he earned. We wanted to look past his lack of malice instead of punishing his classroom disruptions. The educrats prefer, quote-unquote, creative thinking to teaching responsibility. Teaching responsibility is not engaging. It does not require a massive outlay of taxpayer money. The only thing that teachers and administrators need to teach responsibility is the will to do so. That will cannot be weak. Teaching responsibility is difficult. Students will resist the initial efforts. Parents will be unhappy with failing grades. Divorced parents, battling for the child's affection and loyalty, will often bend over backwards to defend unacceptable behavior. The leftists will scream about discrimination by race, ethnic group, sex, or anything else in its bag of often-used tools. I did not see any of my former colleagues at the funeral home. I understand that some came after I left. However, every one of us should have been there. The superintendent of schools, the director of the state school system, and the U.S. Secretary of Education should have, too. All of them should have taken a long look at John's body in his casket. We, every last well-educated one of us, should reflect on the cost of not having taught John to be a responsible adult. We should account for the price of our sins of omission. Then we should go back to school and teach our students two things. One is that they are responsible for their actions. The other is that childhood must end well before one's 18th birthday. It is unlikely that the educrats will accept this challenge. 
Schools reflect the culture from which they spring. A society that celebrates celebrity misbehavior will not create well-regulated schools. Intellectuals who reject morality and objective truth cannot teach either. If, however, by adopting this program, we will have at least done our part to try to change young lives. However, the only way to turn back this chain of rebellion is to return to God and right religion. Only a moral solution can address this failure and open up young minds to the beauty of the truth for which we all were created. End of Does Modern Education Actually Educate? Thank you so much for listening. To find these or related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service from which you acquired it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright. 2020, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.